This is the Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett, a podcast from the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, an organization dedicated to eradicating racism and hate and spreading anti-racism. Listen as Donzel talks about the relevant topics that will inspire you and help build your capability to take action and change the world. Because none of us are doing enough as long as racism still exists. And now, here's your host, Donzel Leggett. Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of Season 3 of The Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett. In this episode, I welcome trailblazer and author Dr. Otto Stallworth Jr., who against all odds rose from the Jim Crow South to become a successful doctor, entrepreneur, and entertainment manager to share his incredible story and discuss topics from his new memoir ranging from Angela Davis, Condoleezza Rice, and even LSD to how the current tone of the United States feels dangerously reminiscent of George Wallace's segregated Alabama. Now let's get started with our show. So I am Donzel Leggett, host of the Arc of Change podcast and founder of the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, or ARC. Our vision at ARC is to build a racism-free world, and our mission is to provide inspiration, education, and support for you to transform, practice, and spread anti-racism and anti-hate. This begins with our three-step process of personal transformation to anti-racism. The first step is erasing your ignorance about racism and hate. The second step is educating yourself about anti-racism. And the third step is building the character and confidence to stand up, speak out, and take action to spread anti-racism and anti-hate and make positive change happen. Now, let's just take a second and imagine. Imagine growing up in a place where the city in which you live gives you daily reminders everywhere you go, everywhere you look, that you are less than. Not even a second-class citizen, but a non-person. A place where bombings of neighborhoods that look like yours were so commonplace, they became part of the naming of the place. Where parents who look like your parents had to take turns doing night watch of the entrance to their neighborhood, watching for people who are coming to harm anyone they found on the street that looked like you. Imagine that in this place where you are a child, just trying to grow up, trying to go to school, trying to get to a point where you go through puberty and move on to the rest of your life. You're in that childhood state. But in this place, someone who doesn't look like you could simply harm you for no reason. They could steal from you. They could rape you. They could actually kill you and face no fear of prosecution. It sounds like a place far, far away from the United States as we know it. A place that must be so far away with some sort of a malicious 
dictator, tyrant, or maybe a foreign place of the past like Nazi Germany or apartheid South Africa. But believe it or not, this was the United States just 60 years ago. This was the reality of the Jim Crow South, a place of domestic terror sanctioned by the state, a place where thousands were terrorized, beaten, raped, lynched, and murdered, the place where Emmett Till was kidnapped, brutally tortured, and terribly and disfiguredly murdered. The place where the three civil rights workers, James Cheney, Michael Schwerner, and Andrew Goodman were kidnapped, brutally tortured, murdered, and thrown and buried in a ditch. And the place where those four little innocent girls, Denise McNair, Addie Mae Collins, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley, were bombed, brutalized, and killed at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. From this reality, many heroic people found ways to cope, to survive, and even to thrive through this terror zone. Their current efforts in states like Florida to try to erase this fact of American history from our history books, from teaching of our young people. So it is so very important that we listen to the unsung heroes who actually lived through these times, right in the heart, the ground zero of the domestic terror, because that's what it was, terrorism. Right there, unfettered domestic terrorism and hate right here in the United States. We must listen to them, give them the platform to share their story so we don't forget, despite the efforts of those who want to whitewash it. We are fortunate to have one of those unsung heroes joining us on this episode. Dr. Otto Stallworth Jr. was born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama during the time of this terrible domestic terror. The same city where those four little girls were bombed to death. A place that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once called the nation's most segregated city. A place notorious for brutal, racially motivated violence. A place where black people not only couldn't count on the law to protect them, but in fact had to fear the law most. Embodied by Bull Connor as the main perpetrators of this violence and brutality against them. There's a reason why the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. knew that he had to be arrested in Birmingham to bring attention to this terrorism and why he wrote his famous letter from a Birmingham jail. Dr. Otto Stallworth Jr. rose from this. Birmingham, to incredibly earn his medical degree, 
complete his residency and eventually become chief of anesthesia at Hawthorne Community Hospital and Robert F. Kennedy Medical Center. To become an entrepreneur, having owned and operated the Otto E. Stallworth Jr. MD Pain Management Center. To become an entertainment manager in the music industry, having managed A Taste of Honey, the first black music group to win the Grammy Award for Best New Artist. And to become an author, having written screenplays and recently published his first book, a memoir, entitled, Are You an N-Word or a Doctor? When you consider all of this, it's clear that Dr. Stallworth is another example for us of hope. That's H-O-P-E, How Optimistic People Endure. The author, entrepreneur, philanthropist, and true trailblazer, Dr. Otto Stallworth Jr. joins me next. The Arc of Change podcast is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. Visit us at joinarcc.org to learn more about Arc and join our movement. Okay, welcome back to the Ark of Change. And as promised, we're here with our very esteemed, uh, very important guest, my good friend, the trailblazer, the author, Dr. Otto Stallworth Jr. Dr. Stallworth, welcome to the Ark of Change. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Man, we're so happy to have you. Like I said, I feel privileged to have you joining us and I've gotten to know you a little bit over the last couple of months, but our audience doesn't know you. Let's start off by just having you introduce yourself to the audience. Okay, well, I um, I was born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama, and um, I left the, uh, the Alabama state line for the first time at age 16 to go to Howard University. So I went to Howard University, majored in, uh, in uh, uh, Allied Sciences which is pre-med, and then went to medical school at Meharry Medical College in Nashville. Then I went to an internship at a Case Western Reserve Hospital in Ohio. And then I came to Los Angeles to do uh, an anesthesiology residency at at, uh, UCLA. And uh, after that, I was scheduled to go into the uh, public health service as a physician. Uh, That was counseled due to some uh, publicity that came out regarding the uh, Tuskegee syphilis study. Yes. And so uh, I was honorably discharged from that. And then I remained in, uh, I've been in Los Angeles ever since. I retired, uh, I started with my retirement about uh, four years ago, actually five years ago, 2016. Where time flies, huh? That's, uh, <laughs> that's seven years ago. Wow. Seven years ago. And, uh, and I started to pursue an old passion, which was uh, writing. And uh, I went to, uh, I started out by enrolling at the uh, UCLA Master of Fine Arts program. I was admitted after submitting a few pages and in, uh, interview. And by the way, I was the oldest one in the class. <laughs> you know, everyone else I just finished college, you know, like 2012, 2013. 
And I hated to stand up and say, my name is Dr. Otto Starworth, and I graduated in 1966. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I didn't make that part. I just said retired anesthesiologist. Yeah. Anyway, that, that started on a course of writing, and um, I had a little short-term illness in the middle of that program. And, um, and so I had to quit, but I did finish the screenplay. And while shopping that screenplay, um, a friend of mine, an actress, Denise Nicholas, who I've known for many years socially, wow. she uh, invited me to join her writer's group. And in that writer's group, they were writing a, 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 a memoir. And that's how I got on the path to write the memoir that I just completed. Uh, it was just published. Actually, February 13th was the official date. It came out available on uh, ebooks in December 23rd. But uh, yeah, that's how I finished my first. And I plan to, the, the screenplay that I finished while at, uh, at UCLA, I'm, I'm planning to convert that to a, uh, to a novel. I have to say, our writers group met for the first time this past uh, Saturday for the first time in a, in a while because of the pandemic. Yeah. And I presented my, I had written 80 pages. <laughs> I presented my first 12 pages. It didn't go over too well. I, you know, they 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 weren't too harsh, but I could tell I, I have a lot of work to do uh, to get started on that. You know, writing yeah. is a is a chore. It's uh is but I you know I enjoy the process, but it's really hard work. And 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 like Walter Mosley said last week at this uh, conference we had here in Los Angeles, writing is rewriting, rewriting, rewriting. Yes, and and that's yes. very true. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you, man. So that's for, about it. Uh, that, kind of sums up uh, seventy-seven years of life. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a great it's a great summary. And and your new book, you mentioned it. Um, Are you an N word or a doctor? That's the title. And uh, I, I got to tell you, when I yeah. first saw the title, it got my attention. So if that was your intent with that title, it certainly gets your attention. Um, tell us. You mentioned a little bit earlier about. Um, you know, you were with Denise Nichols and, and talk about the memoir and that kind of sparked the idea. I'm guessing maybe that had a, a role in what drove you to write the book. But tell us what what drove you to write the book. And more importantly, what are you hoping to accomplish with with this book, which is kind of like the first half of your life, which I've read. It's thoroughly enjoyable. And we're going to get into some of the fun stories. But tell us what you were trying to accomplish with the book. Well, first, let me let me uh, ask, go back to something you mentioned, the title. Yes. The title of the uh, when I was uh, when we were asked to write the memoir, you know, I, I actually had never read a memoir and didn't know really the difference between a memoir and, a, and an autobiography. Ah. And then I learned the process that the memoir is a slice of life, uh, as opposed to an me- uh, autobiography, which takes you through a person's life from beginning to end. is usually is usually in in order, and uh, and it's usually has to usually verified. I mean, usually uh, documented in terms of dates and. And and uh, and that kind of thing. So um, so in that process, uh, um, uh, I it said you write from memory, right? Yeah. So the this incident that occurred to me in 1970 when I arrived in Ohio as the only black a uh, black doctor among 30, 30 to thirty five interns and residents at at Case Western Reserve in. Uh, in Ohio, um, um, that was my first experience of being out of an all-black environment. Mm. I'd gone to uh, 
uh, all black uh, elementary school, all I mean kindergarten, all the way up to high school, and then of course Howard University, yeah, and Meharry Medical College, which is predominantly black, and uh, and 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 so this what occurred, and 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 and, um, and that uh, inspired that title was something that I've never never forgotten because I was asked that question by a patient, um, uh, and I'm and I I won't spoil this. The chapter by telling you my answer, but uh, that uh, that the memory of that um, it, it just turned out it, because of that it turned out to be the first story that I wrote, and that's because of the first thing that I remember, and uh, and that's that's pretty much the title. Now I forgot your other your question. Original question was what what drove you to write and turn it into a full book. And what what are you trying to accomplish oh. with this memoir? Is, was there something a specific objective that you're trying to accomplish with the memoir? It didn't start out that way, because as I said, I I, I was invited to join the group after I had turned over, a uh, asked her to read the screenplay, and then she invited yeah. me for this memoir. But as I started writing it, I realized uh, uh, that um, my my kids, I have four kids who uh, range in age from 22 to 52. And I have um, five, let's see, six grandkids. And, you know, you when you try to talk to your kids and tell them a, a story about your life, uh, they're not really that interested in hearing, you know, the importance of it. So, and it depends on on their ages. You know, when they're younger, of course, the, the, I mean, it just varies according to age and according to their personalities and according to maturity. So they really know nothing about me. Most of the stuff in that book, uh, that memoir that I wrote, my kids and grandkids don't know anything about what happened to me. So I, you know, when I I had an agent at at one point in the process, 2021, who wanted me to turn the book into fiction by taking out the uh, reflection and the comment comments and so forth. But then that's when I realized that I'm not writing the book really to make money as much as I am to write in the book to leave something for my kids to understand who I am and where I came from because they have a total different uh, upbringing than I did. And in, in, uh, in fact, that I was able to make a little money. Uh, my parents had no money. Yeah. I, I never traveled. I never left the state of Alabama until I was 16. I had never seen the ocean. I'd never seen sand. I'd never seen Kentucky bluegrass, which turned out not to be blue. <laughs> and, um, and all these kind of things. So I, uh, I wanted them to have something to that they may not read till they're forty or fifty, but at least something's there yeah. where they look and can look at who Grandpa was and what he went through and what what his experience was, and um, so that's that's sort of that became my 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 purpose. I, I think that's uh, that's great, and it was, it's going to help certainly your grandkids, but it's going to help others like me and others who are listening to this podcast that uh, didn't grow up during one of the most tumultuous times in U.S. history. You know, you grew up, you know, during the civil rights movement. You know, you were there in ground zero in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, you know, Montgomery Birmingham, bus boycott. Birmingham. On Birmingham. But Birmingham, same state. Birmingham. So you got, you got Birmingham, you got Montgomery, yeah. you got Selma, all in the same state. Governor George Wallace, uh, who some of us right. know what he was all about in terms of uh, against uh, integration, Bull Connor. We, 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 you know, we've seen the 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 stories of spraying people with hoses and all of these types of things and sicking dogs on people. 
Um, you know, obviously Dr. King, you know, you live through that. Uh, and what I love about your book is how you talk about that all happening while at the same time you tell stories of a normal kid growing up. So just, just tell us a little bit about what it was like, uh, you know, growing up without giving everything away in the book, but what it was like growing up in the state of Alabama during that time. You know, it was interesting you asked that question because that's a question that um, I, that comes up among us, among the people that grew up in Birmingham. Yeah, we um, it, it was normal. It was really like domestic terrorism because there were an average of forty to fifty bombings a year of black homes, black oh, churches, or colored homes, colored churches, which is the word we used at that time. And it never really made the news outside of uh, Alabama, outside of the, the colored newspapers, the Birmingham Mirror and the Birmingham uh, World. Yeah. And um, and 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 so it only made the news when uh, those four girls were, were bombed and, yes. and, and 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 killed. But and so when when we've had uh, like I was in Washington D.C. and we had like a Birmingham party. And one of the questions I asked was, you know, how did we, and you know, we we in spite of all those bombings, in spite of the demonstrations and the, the for, for for color only and white only signs and all the turmoil that was going on, we led normal lives. We went to school. We played in the band. We 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 had parties. We uh, went clubbing. <laughs> we uh, we drank. You know, there was no drugs there. No, that we were aware of in terms of marijuana and, and and cocaine and all that kind of stuff. I think the the worst drug I heard about at that age was cough syrup. You know, because in those days they were putting codeine in cough syrup, and legally you could buy it across the counter. Wow, so I didn't realize they were doing that back then. I thought that was a new thing that these guys are doing these days with this with this syrup well, or whatever they call the it. Most of, uh, that was the most abu abusive drug wow. that I I was I was other I than alcohol. I did not and, know uh, that. Wow. No, and 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 in Birmingham, alcohol, we had uh, you know because they had what they call the ABC stores. Yeah. Uh, well, Alabama Beverage Control, I think it stood for, and um, so that's the only place you could buy alcohol, and they closed at five o'clock every day. Wow. And and they were. It was very sterile, you know. It was just yeah. a. It was government state run, so it was just white walls with no signs, no nothing. Uh, locked cabinets for the alcohol. Uh, a security guard at the front door, and and they closed at five or six. So that made a booming business for bootleggers. Wow! And uh, one of the most bootleggers in Alabama was called Bam Bam. Bam Bam. And I never understood what this slogan was: Bam Bam, thank you, ma'am. <laughs> you know? And Bam Bam had an house on a section of uh, of uh, what we call Smithfield, a part of Birmingham. And you could you could pass by any time, and people were coming in and out of this little house with paper bags, constantly. You know. Yeah. So I, I was telling that of it just to say that. For us as 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 kids, alcohol was uh, was uh, was available uh, from bootleggers because you yeah. didn't need ID to go to a bootlegger. And uh, so, to answer your question, we, I, you know, I don't know the answer to that because we somehow my answer when I, when I was with my uh, my peers who I grew up with, and I asked that question to the group, how did we end up, you know, being just so normal with all of this terror going on? And um, they said our parents, mm. our parents protected us. 
we were, because it was a segregated community, I never really ever saw white people except on TV or the bus driver, you know, because uh, our, you know, a policeman riding through someplace because we were totally segregated. Everything we did was was colored people. You know, you went to a colored school, you went to a colored church, you drove to a colored neighborhood. There were no white people living in your neighborhood except the, in my book there was one exception yep. uh, that I wrote about. And uh, so that's that's sort of uh, it. And I I still don't understand. I mean, when, when I look back at it, and and you, like you read those stories, I'm telling you, all of those stories uh, are about the story. The books, the stories in the book are written about what I was going through, you know, socially, uh, dealing with uh, puberty, yeah, dealing with uh, all those sort of sub- subjects. And yet, in the background, you know, like. Um, I remember telling one story about um, uh, I wanted to talk to my father about uh, how he, uh, uh, why did he drop out of school at the seventh grade? Yeah. It was a very sensitive subject because my mother finished high school and now she was going to night school to uh, to try to get a college degree because she wanted to be a teacher, which, which was the highest profession a, a colored person could reach at that time in Alabama. And my father wanted her to spend the money on uh, the bills and uh, this and that and other other things. So it was a conflict. And 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 I knew he didn't had finished the grade of seventh grade. So I wanted to know why. You know, was yeah. it because he was dumb? He flunked out? What? Yeah. So we used to have these chats, and, and the chapter in the book is called "Sunroom Chats" because in that room, my parents had converted this porch. It was the front porch, but they enclosed it and converted it to a, uh, a, a part of the living room. Yeah. And it had big windows and a lot of sun, so she called it the sunroom. So uh, we used to sit there. My father would be either asleep or reading the paper. And we had, we'd uh, had talk, ask questions. I'd be playing on the floor or with my toys or reading or doing homework. And uh, we have these chats. So I waited for her to leave to ask him why did he quit school uh, at the seventh grade. Uh, and he told me the story. And um, I, just to summarize it, basically what had happened was there was a new thing called income tax. Oh, Because wow. this was in the 1920s. Yeah. There was a new thing called income tax. And they lived on a farm and, and, and uh, acres and acres of land. And, uh, and they grew their own food and they, they made their living by, by selling the food. And, and, and of course, they have their own food, their own chickens, their own animals, you know, which, which they have for food. But if they needed clothes and other things, they sell. So they knew nothing about property tax. Mm. So all, all of a sudden, they got this, these notices that they were delinquent in property taxes. So my father had to go out and find a job at, from the seventh grade. From the seventh grade. And uh, with the seventh grade, he was the oldest of, uh, of his three brothers and two sisters. And the only one that they thought could you know, could work. So he went to what they call a, a C camp. Yeah. Which some people thought was a concentration camp. But he went to the C camp and they would have to pick uh pick peas. And 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 you were paid based on uh the number of bags you of peas you brought back. And 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 they wow. it was slave labor. There were no labor protection laws, but he worked from sun up to sundown. And then they slept in these little bungalows. And uh, and I won't go through a lot of detail, but a lot of detail is in the book about what they went through. And at the end of that process, when he got ready to get paid, they deducted for the food, they deducted for the place he stayed. So he really didn't make that much money. 
Wow. But uh, that's a story he told me about in the uh, in the in that sunroom chat, which is uh, in that particular chapter, and th- that affected me because I was trying to figure out uh, what 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 would it be like if my classmates were out working in a pea farm? Yeah, you know, filling up picking peas and filling up big bags with, with peas. They had to take showers. Uh, outdoors, but they have to go walk. Uh, I don't know how many, how far, but he said far to fill up buckets of water, and then they bring the buckets of water and uh, pour it over each other, suds up, and then pour the you know have to stand up on something to pour the water on each other. Oh, I mean, that's man. the way they took a shower, a wow. concreted area, and uh, and that that was the most fun he had during that that three months that he worked there. And uh, and he worked for three months before they pay you, and they pay. And, and when they shorted them, he he never went back never to work. Never went there. back. But it was um, stuff like that that uh, that uh, that was very uh, that gave you a little history. And and my mom, I didn't mention that the reason my mom wasn't at home that night is because she was on what we call what is now today called neighborhood watch. We called it white man watch. White man watch. because of the bombing. White man watch. And and they did this in most of the black neighborhoods, especially Sugar Hill, which became known as Dynamite Hill. But you had uh, my mother and another another lady would sit in a car. We had three ways to get into our neighborhood, and at each place, my, uh, two two people would sit in a car and look. And if they saw a white man, they had walkie talkies. They were walkie talkie back to the to the to the house, you know, one of the houses there, and the men would get their guns. And be ready wow. for the white people coming through the neighborhood, and uh, and so she was out. That's how I was able to have that conversation. We had a small house, two bedroom house, so any conversation I had with my dad, my mother would hear. So that's why I waited for her to leave to have that conversation. It's, it's called it's under a chapter called Sunroom Chats. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's um, and, and to ask you a question back to the original question. It, it, it's hard for me to explain it. But also, I have to say that it wasn't as, um, since I since I wrote this book, I've been getting a lot of uh, calls and emails and texts from people that I grew up with hmm. who lived uh, lived through what I lived through. Yeah. And one of them, her father was an architect. Yeah. And uh, she lived on the hill. And uh, and she wrote me a letter. She said that when she was reading my book, she uh, started had to put it down every once in a while because she started crying. Oh, man. And I said, why were you crying? She said, because I remember, see, Sugar Hill, was it was a high point. It was a hill, like a mountain, really. And from her house, she had a view. She could see even 16th Street Baptist Church from, from her house. Wow. So the day that church, the day that church uh, ex- exploded, it was dynamited. She uh, she could see the smoke from her bedroom, Jeez. coming from the, from the church. And uh, her grandmother was supposed to go. With, that was her church. That was her church. And and this is the, the church where the, the four little girls were were killed. Correct. Yeah, just right, so people this is the know. Church where the four girls were yeah. killed. And so she. Um, she uh, and her windows rattled and everything else from this explosion. Yeah. And she she found out her grandma, thank goodness, had not gone to church that day. 
Otherwise, she may have been a, a victim of the, of, of the bombing. She also mentioned that uh, there was an attorney named Arthur Shores. Arthur Shores, from 1935 to 1956, was the only colored licensed attorney in the state of Alabama. In the state? The only attorney. Total. In the state. Not just Birmingham, Consequently, but the state. Not just Birmingham, in the state. So consequently, he handled all of the civil rights cases, every case that came up, whether it was yeah. Martin Luther King or, or a suit against for, for, against for segregation or this and that. So he was targeted, and they bombed his house on a routine basis oh. in Sugar Hill. He lived on the main street, which was called Center Street. And he, uh, luckily, nobody was ever killed uh, except his dog. His dog was killed on one of the bombings. Well, she can remember the lady I was talking about that, that called me and that texted me and emailed me. She still suffers from from uh, remembering that bombing because it rattled. First of all, they threw a rock. Somebody threw a big rock. Her father was an architect. So they had a, a really modern kind of house for 1952, 53. Yeah. It was, had a flat roof and a lot of windows. And somebody threw a big boulder through uh, through their uh, front window, big window, and she remembers that. And then she remembers the explosion one time of uh, of um, of uh, Arthur Shaw's house, which was just down the street from her. And she remembers coming out and running down and so forth. And she still has uh, uh, dreams about that to this day. And that's why as she was reading these different uh, chapters of my book, especially the part that that was about uh, Birmingham. Yeah, she, uh, she she had to put it down. She couldn't stop reading it, but she had to stop because she got so 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 crying. So I think the answer to your question is that some of us were affected differently. Yeah, uh, in my neighborhood, we never had a bomb, and and I never heard. I lived far away from the church. Yeah. And so I never heard an explosion. I didn't have that exposure. But also I have, uh, at that same meeting, uh, one of the ladies, and I won't mention her name for privacy reasons, but one of the ladies, who, she was in my class uh, in, ele in, in, in elementary school, and her sister, I knew her, her sister died, and it was one of the four girls uh, that died in that bombing. And, wow. and we, in, in D.C., she lives somewhere in D.C. now, and she still has uh, issues uh, regarding what happened, you know. Uh, yeah. uh, and 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 also in in that book, um, one of the stories I talk about. Uh, my mother has a Christmas party uh, six years after the bombing. Is 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 somewhere during the Christmas holidays, and um, uh, Mr. Pippin. I had a cleaners called Pippin Cleaners. He lived right across the street. I mean, his church. His, he lived around the corner from me, and I could see his backyard from my backyard. But his his, his cleaners was on the side of the 16th Street Baptist Church. Mm. His granddaughter was one of those four girls killed. Oh man! And the morning that the bomb went off, he was in his in his cleaners. In his cleaners, uh, working. And he had planned to go across the street to the church at 11 o'clock because the four girls were supposed to participate in some kind of um, some kind of special program. Uh, and they would, and in fact, what happened while they were in the bathroom, changing into their uh, robes and whatnot for this 
this program is when the bomb went off right underneath the, the bathroom, which is why they were the only ones uh, killed. And uh, that bomb went off, and uh, and it blew off the front of the of his um, uh, um, cleaners. His ears were ringing, and when he went outside, you know, make a long story short, he uh, he found his grand his granddaughter uh, beheaded. Oh my bomb. gosh! I, and, I don't. Uh, oh. There's a photo of Buster Pippen. I went to the African American Museum in in D.C. Yeah, years ago. And uh, and there's a there's a big gigantic poster of Mr. Pippen, very light skinned uh, black man. Yes. Uh, in agony, crying, tears. And when I saw that poster, I started crying. Yeah, that had to bring bring back just terrible memories. And like you said, um, there are others that have more graphic memories that heard it and and saw the smoke. But just to grow up in that environment and to know Mr. Pippen, and I've seen that poster. I didn't know who he was, but now that you describe it, I've seen it. I've been to the museum um, a couple of times. Um, and he was in an agony because he had just found his granddaughter beheaded. Beheaded. And piled on top of, and the four girls were piled on top of each other. It was a horrible, horrible thing. And he related that story to me at the Christmas party. And, yeah. and at that point, six years later, they still hadn't caught anybody for, for the bombings. Wow. You know, it was years, years later when they finally prosecuted somebody. Yeah, it's hard for many of us. I mean, it. it a, a lot of us today try to make sure we describe what was going on at that time, even though we weren't alive, like I wasn't alive, especially for those who lived in the Jim Crow South, is living under terrorist conditions, exactly the way you described it. Because we grew up seeing terrorism in places like the Middle East and and, you know, seeing these things happen. And then we see these films of what was going on. It's like that happened in the United States. Our people were subjected to living in a terrorist state. And I think it's good that we describe it that way to make it, you know, real. Um, And it's interesting to me that uh, when I was talking to you, and I've always felt the same way, but I didn't grow up under those conditions. I grew up, I was born um, in in 68, um, same year Dr. King was, was assassinated only a few months after that. And my experience has been it's, it, nothing like that. Um, so I grew up always proud to be black, never never wanting to ever be white. But to live in that conditions where just being black means you could not only be discriminated against, but killed without impunity. Um, and yet you describe still always being proud of being black. Um, talk about that in how, you know, there was a, there were others who, you know, had, you know, maybe went a different route, but you were proud to be black and, and, and no matter what the circumstances were in which you were dealing with. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure how that came about, but it, it, it's, uh, an example of that is a story uh, I, I wrote called Skin. Yeah. Skin, I don't want to be white. And, uh, and so that sort of emphasizes your point because it was it was a make a long story short it was a it's a story about where I had some I had some spots on my skin I yes. still have those spots it's called it's called uh, tinea versicola um, it's a fungal kind of thing but a doctor mixed misdiagnosed me a white doctor a white dermatologist and said that I had uh, vitiligo yeah and vitiligo is the thing that they said Jackson had and that the Michael Jackson have, yeah white and black people. You lose all your all your pigmentation, pigmentation and become very white, and uh, and and I and and 
so to to emphasize your point, I when the doctor said to me, he said he said don't worry about it because it was soon it'll just take over your all your skin and you'll be white like me. And I said what? Oh my god! I don't want to be white. I don't want to be white. All the way home, I said, mommy, I don't want to be white. I don't want to be white. And uh, so that's how it emphasizes your point that we we we. Uh, we developed this this pride, yeah. And I'm not sure what how it came about. I guess it was because we were because of our parents, yes. you know, and 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 our teachers, and 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 the whole. Um, we had a whole different because of segregation. We had a whole different world. Yeah. Our, 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 all our teachers were black. Our principals were black. A lot of men. It was at the time. It was one of the best, uh, highest jobs that a black person could get. Uh, colored person at that time we called them. Yeah. So so most of our best people went into uh, education and teaching. Yes. And so and you know and I realized the importance of this until around 1974, Angela Davis, who I, who I grew up with in Birmingham, wrote an autobiography, and we went to the same uh, elementary school. Uh, uh, my first two years, and again. I switched schools because of an incident around the second grade. But we went to the same elementary school. Her mother was a teacher. And um, 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 I lost my point that I was going into. What, what were, uh, uh, you, you were talking about we, pride of being black and maybe where it came from with uh, with many of the teachers being black and and maybe that's where you were going. Oh with. yeah, when Angela Davis, Angela Davis was when I read her autobiography, that was the first time that I became aware of of, of the fact that that all black experience had given us so much strength yeah. and so much pride and so much um, and made us so smart and, and and made us so determined to to get get edu- educa- uh, education because the education was emphasized. By our teachers, and she, and she talked about that in a, in a, a chapter where she felt that that nurturing yeah. that we got from our, our, our teachers and that uh, that caring and and so forth was was gave us strength, and so I think that's one of the things you yeah. asked how 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 we came up wanting you know loving to be black in a, in a sense of that, and then and then of course. Uh, there's a, a story in my book about uh, called hair. Yes, where I wanted to you know now among black people, as I point out also in some of my stories, and even even today, you know, black people, uh, colored people, uh, you know, I found color to be more apropos really in terms of what we look like. Yeah, because in a black family, there's rarely uh, everybody's the same complexion. That's right. You know, you have. Be dark, somebody be be light, somebody, and and uh, and I had never seen. um, uh, I had only seen white people on TV. Yeah, uh, a black and white TV, and so they look white, like 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 uh, like typing people. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, on the way to 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 this uh, uh, photography studio, uh, I saw white people on the street, and I said. Damn, they don't look like the ones on TV. They look pink, <laughs> yeah, right? Um, so, and they're all the same color. Yep. So I asked my mom, "How do white people tell each other apart?" And she said, uh, "What? Do you 
I said, well, they're all the same color. So how do they tell each other apart? Because we we use terms like, you know, so-and-so, you know, the so I just met someone, he's a little lighter than such and such, darker yeah. than Joe, but a little lighter than than Kali. Yes. And, you know, that's the kind of thing. That's the kind of way we describe people. So th- that shows you the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, what happens in when you, in a segregated segregated yep. environment? Yes, um, and so I think a certain strength comes from that. Going back to your original question, how do we maintain to be proud? I think some of it's evolution because also there's a story in there. I was giving her to tell a story about the hair. Yeah, where I shampooed my hair, noticed yeah. it was wavy, <laughs> and then I, <laughs> so I left myself in, and I went to school. And got caught in the rain, and it subs up, and you know it was really embarrassing. But then you flash forward four years later, uh, I think it was eight, maybe eight years later. Uh, when I st- and there's a photo in the book when I started medical school, I had a short haircut like yeah. I have now. Yeah. And when I graduated uh, four years later, I had an afro about that big. You yeah. Know? Uh, so uh, you know, like seven, eight, ten inches. So that just shows you the metamorphosis of what what can occur yes. and how how you change how your values change. But I don't remember anybody. Well, you know, I have to say, in my neighborhood, you know, again, we had uh, like I said, we have all kind of complexions of of, of people, black yes. and white. Yep. I uh, mean, uh, dark skin, light skinners, and there was one family, and I won't mention the names. In fact, in the book, I use a pseudonym, but yep. it was one family. Where the father was uh, darker than me, and uh, but had wavy hair, and the mother was very very fair, and the kids were very very fair, and they looked white. Yeah. Well, one of them uh, uh, went off to the army at seven, 18, and they wrote down. They looked, just looked at him and wrote down white, and he went with it. Wow. And I ran into. And there's a story in a book called Passing for White. Yep. I ran into him in San Francisco. And uh, I was at a medical meeting. This is after I finished medical school and was practicing medicine. And um, and I see him and he's a little uh, distant. He's with two other white people. He's a little distant. He takes me to the side and we meet the next day for for, for dinner. And then it tells me the story where he's been passing for white. Wow. Since, since that day he went into the army. And he's, he uh, legally changed his name, and he went to a white uh, college and, uh, and and a white law school, had a white wife with white kids, two white daughters. Now, the problem was both his daughters um, tanned very easily. Yes. And, you know, and, and they liked that. But he he started thinking, oh, my, you know, they got my father's gene. Yeah. You know, my, grand, my father's. So... So, um, so he went and had a, uh, 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 vasectomy. Wow. And this was like the 1960s. He had a vasectomy because he didn't want to have any more, more, uh, he didn't want to take a chance of having, uh, a kid that came out, you know, dark like his father. The risk. So, uh, and, and, uh, and we talked and, 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 and I won't go through a, a lot of detail of stuff, but he was, he had to hide, hide. You know, he told his his wife that his parents, both parents, were dead in, in Alabama, and 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 uh, and there was no need to go back to visit nobody to visit and all that. So he was wow. completely distant. And uh, so so different um, different things happened, uh, but I think all of us came out with a certain out of that neighborhood and out of that city 
with a certain amount of a great deal of pride of who we were and uh, and went on to achieve great things. And education was really emphasized. And we had people with different philosophies from from Angela Davis to to Condoleezza Rice. Yeah. uh, With different political views and, and so forth. But all with a strong, all came out to be strong, uh, educated black people. Yeah, you you mentioned. So I mean, there's something about that system that that creates that kind of kind of a uh, person. They say oppre- oppression uh, creates. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes the, the oppressed rise up more than yeah. when you're not oppressed. When you feel like you have freedom, I mean, because you look at this generation. Um, is, they nothing's happened to them like what happened to me, for example, or, yes. or the circumstances that I grew up. The signs aren't there. They, they, the, the same thing is happening again. The only difference is there are no signs that say colored only and white only. Yeah. Uh, but the, the 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 racist undertones are there, especially from certain political parties. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we'll, let me we'll, stop talking. That's right. We'll we'll get into a little bit more of that later. But I do want to get back to one thing you you mentioned, uh, and this is this idea of, again, having role models that they're all in the same neighborhood because of segregation. Um, not segregation is not good, but that that was in, uh, something that impacted you. And this idea of we're subjugated, we have to value education to change that. And you talked about uh, Condoleezza Rice, the former Secretary of State of the United States. Her father, uh, Reverend John Wesley Rice, played a very important role in your life as one of these mentors, helping you you know, through your, your early years of education and even getting into, into medical school. Tell about how Dr. Uh, or Reverend John Wesley Rice played an impact in your life. Well, Reverend Rice was a neighbor. He was a, a friend of my, uh, my, uh, my parents, and his church was right on the corner from my house, and he also was a high school counselor. Um, I used to see him a lot. I, I, I didn't go to his church. I went to a Baptist church. He had a Presbyterian church. Uh, but uh, uh, he, being the counselor at the high school, um, I got in. I had great grades, uh, almost all A's. But um, <clears throat> but I had some um, behavioral issues, let's say, and so I spent a lot of time with him. Each time I got in trouble, I had to meet with the counselor, so I got okay. to know him pretty well. <laughs> let's say he, he took an interest in me because. Um, Number one, he valued education, and he 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 loved students that did well in school. Yeah, and he knew my parents, and he knew my situation, and he blamed uh, my parents divorced when I was twelve, which was just before I started high school. I started high school at twelve because uh, I skipped a, a grade earlier, and um, so he, he 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 knew my situation. He um, he. Uh, one of the things happened in Birmingham and including Reverend Rice, they always ask you, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yes. And and from age six or seven, I started saying a doctor. And that's another story, but I started saying doctor. And so so he knew that. So, and, and, and being a man who valued education, he took a special, you know, I look back at it now. This is where I look at it now. I, and I realized it at the, at the time, but he took a special interest in me because he wanted me to succeed. And uh, so what happened, basically, when I got to the senior year, I realized that, um, that, uh, that, I need, that I, my parents didn't have the money to send me to college. 
Okay. And and I had this idea. Uh, I wanted to go to Howard University, and um, they were offering uh, scholarships uh, to the top ten male students. Uh, it wasn't a full scholarship, but a, a tuition. I think paid tuition for the top ten students to go to any college in the United Negro College Fund. Mm -hmm. But Howard was not in the United Negro College Fund because Howard was established by the Freedmen's Bureau. Uh, right after slavery oh. uh, ended and uh, was supported by the federal government. Okay. So it wasn't in the United College Fund. So so they didn't offer that scholarship. So, um, and I was um, uh, bent on going to Howard because of, uh, of a student who graduated top of the class athlete and he chose Howard. And, and after my investigation, I decided that's where I wanted to go. It fitted all of the criteria that I had for myself and wanting to become a doctor and so forth. And, um, but I had no money. So I was becoming uh, uh, depressed. And, 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 and in meetings with him, he was trying to encourage me to take one of these scholarships to, to one of the other schools. And I said, no, I wanted to go to Howard. And I, and I, and I think I relate this in the story where I remember my, my mother's beauty shop had a sign above that said, um, uh, where there's a will, there's a way. Hmm. So I, I kept pushing. And um, and then he finally, uh, he said, he said, Otto, you, you're very difficult. You know, let me think about this. Uh, you know, you may have to, you know, you can't, you can't, you just, Howard is just not in the, in the, in the cards. And, and then um, he called, uh, he stopped me in the hall one day. He said, look, tell your mom, I want to come over tonight. I have some great news. I said, okay. So he came over and he told us that there was a new, a new um, program that just started a year before, a year ago. And it was called the National Health Defense Program. And I, and I don't know how this program came about, but what they did, they provided uh, loans and scholarship based on need. And because my parents didn't have the, the money, I, I qualified. Wow. And that and that program paid all paid full tuition and 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 housing, paid everything. Uh, now part of it was loan, half half of it was loans and half of it was uh was scholarship. And that same program got me through uh four years of, of college and then four years of uh of, of medical school. And had it not been for Reverend Rice, uh, number one, counseling me through all the little issues I had, uh, <laughs> uh, which he attributed to my parents' divorce when yeah. I was twelve. But uh, I didn't see it that way. I just, I just wanted to have, I guess, have fun <laughs> as the way I saw. Yep. But uh, you know, uh, and and the details are sort of in that story. I don't want to go through the whole whole chapter of what happened, but but that's how he helped me. Now. Um, I didn't realize at the time how valuable his help was. Actually, uh, until uh, 1996, I got a call from uh, Condoleezza, uh, and I hadn't seen her. When I graduated from high school, she was in a second grade. Oh, so wow. I didn't really know her. Yeah. In the, in, in, Growing in Birmingham, because she was a lot younger. But she called me, and she wanted, her father was, uh, they had moved from Birmingham while I was at Howard. They moved from Birmingham to Denver, and he was teaching at some college in Denver, and then uh, where she went to school. And then, um, uh, so she called me. He was being honored by Pete Wilson, who at the time was the governor of uh, of California. Okay. 
And this was 1996 or uh, 95, somewhere in there. And, um, uh, and she was having a pre-program before the program where Pete Wilson awarded, the, 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 awarded him the, whatever she, he was getting, where she, she had representatives of all the schools where he had taught. So I was there to represent Urban High School. And that was my first time seeing him in 35 years. Wow. And, uh, and he, was in a, he was the same except he was in a wheelchair, gained a little weight. And he, he started the conversation. He always called me um, Ato, the way he pronounced <laughs> my name. He, had a, he, Ato. he was a very, he was a, he was a minister who had a, a, a baritone kind of voice and, you know, very serious man. Yes. And it was a Ato. And from the time I saw him, I mean, from that minute when I saw him, it was as if I had never, the 35 years hadn't passed right. because he was back to talking to me like I was the kid from, you know, and I was looking at him like he was the, <laughs> the high school counselor. Yes. And uh, and and he was uh, introducing his students in, 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 in there, and you could see the pride in his face. Oh. He was so proud that I was a doctor, you know, and... Uh, and uh, so that was that was uh, that was my chance to thank him, and uh, and uh, and realize what 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 he, what he had done. So yeah, that's the that's the part. I don't know. Uh, I may have gone to some other school. I don't know what would have happened if he hadn't yes. been there. Number one, as a counselor, through my little issues in uh, high school, and and number two, uh, getting me that uh, scholarship and loan program. Which provided for eight, you know, four years of college and four years of medical school. That's amazing. Which was pretty, yeah, really amazing. And so, because of, because of that experience, uh, as I wrote this, I realized what had happened. So I, I started a foundation. It's called the Stallworth OES Foundation. It started last year, and um, I have a, a provided a four year, full four year scholarship. For one student at Meharry, and a full four-year student for one student at Howard undergrad, and the student at Meharry, uh, I'm very proud of the situation. I had stipulated that I wanted the uh, the scholarship to go to uh, someone from Birmingham, yeah, who had good grades and no money, yes, and, and no money was the the, the criteria, yeah. Um, and uh, and they couldn't they, they couldn't find anybody I guess in Birmingham. So the next choice would be Alabama, and the next choice would be the South. Yeah. But they had someone who was from Nashville, and this kid is amazing because where his grandma is amazing. Um, he uh, he was homeless. Wow. His mother was a, a drug addict, and he was living homeless. And he was taken in, and his, um, something happened to his mother or whatever. And he was taken in by his grandmother. Well, that student went on to a, a small college in, in Nashville. It wasn't Fisk or Tennessee State, another college that I hadn't heard of. But he went to that college, and he did very well in college. And he got admitted to Meharry Medical College. Had no money. And, uh, and my program provided a four-year scholarship. This kid is amazing. I mean, he, to come from that environment, and, 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 and I said uh, all along to him, you have to give kudos to your grandmother because apparently she did an amazing job with you to take you in from homeless and provide the nurturing or whatever it took to get him to be a serious student uh, was amazing. And she, um, uh, I got a notice from him just a couple of months ago. She passed away. 
his oh, grandma. Man. But he's a Mahari, and he's excelling and doing well. And uh, uh, and I'm really, really proud of that, you know, that I had the uh, ability to help him. Now, the, the fund, I, can, I don't have enough money to help anybody else, any other students, so I'm hoping that the foundation uh, grows in terms of uh, contributions and whatnot uh, so that we can do this for many more students. And one of the criteria of the scholarship, which I've gotten some flack from, from some females, is that I wanted to focus on black males. Yeah. And the reason I want to focus on black males is because the schools are 70%. The classes are 70% female. Yes. And But the males are full of black males for, for petty crimes and, yeah. and, and all this kind of stuff and that, 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 that should be uh, doing something else. So, so that's why I, I think um, black males need more help. Yeah. And, and I've caught some flag from females about this uh, and sending me, uh, after reading my website, they send me uh, emails and, and I explain my point of view, the reason that, I, that I'm focusing on that. Because females don't seem, and, and, it's, and, and interesting enough, it's the same thing is happening among white white students also. The schools have predominantly more white females. Yes. Like the medical school, George Washington, I was talking to someone and uh, and uh, 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 George Washington, the medical school is is like seventy percent female yep. Yep. now. You know, when I when I graduated from med school, we had a class of of eighty, and it was only about eight females. Yeah, so it was like ten percent. Now at that same school, is I understand is more like sixty seventy percent. So there's a dynamic that we haven't really that I don't understand, and I haven't really focused on trying to uh, figure it out. Let me plug my battery in here. Uh, so This actually is probably a good time. So, we can uh, just take a quick break, Dr. Starworth, give you a chance to plug in your battery. Okay. Uh, but please, please come right back. Stay with us. We continue our interview with the trailblazer, the great storyteller, Dr. Otto Stallworth Jr. He's already talked about Denise Nichols. He's already talked about uh, Angela Davis. He's already talked about uh, Condoleezza Rice. Stay with us after this short break to hear who he talks about next. Visit us at joinarcc.org. Follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And like us on Facebook. All right, welcome back to the Ark of Change. And we're here continuing our fantastic interview with Dr. Otto Stallworth Jr. He already has given us some outstanding stories, um, perspective on his time growing up in the Jim Crow South, all through his perspective of becoming a doctor. But we ended off where he had just talked about how uh, how Doctor Reverend Rice had helped him secure the funding to go to to go to college and go to medical school in the North. And Doctor Starworth, you had mentioned to me when you when you first took that that trip. North to go to university, you had expectations in your mind coming from Jim Crow South to this place called the North. Uh, tell us about those expectations and what the reality was when you got to the North. Well, you know, I, it, it goes from the simple to the complex in terms of my expectations, you know, because simple meaning that, uh, uh, you know, in my child mind, uh, 16 year old mind, I expected things to be different in terms of uh, the birds in terms of the trees, in terms of the environment, that everything was going to be beautiful and pretty and better than Birmingham. 
And uh, and then socially, uh, I expected total integration and everybody's getting along happy, you know, and blah, blah, blah. But what I found in terms of, uh, first, let's start with the physical. You know, I had never seen uh, row houses. Hmm. And D.C. Is, have row houses. I had never seen houses connected together because even the poorest of people in Alabama, we had a backyard and a front yard yeah. and usually a big front yard and a big backyard, even the poorest of people. Yeah. So it's something that just kind of took for granted and you lived in independent houses. So that was uh, the row house concept. It was the first I can remember riding from the bus station and after seeing the White House and this and that, I'm looking at what are these houses close together? There's no space. Where do they play? And uh other thing you notice is there's not much uh in terms of uh uh green greenery, you know, yeah. in terms of of, of of parks and and empty spaces and and stuff, you know, no woods, you know, and stuff like that. Wow. Uh in terms of uh, socially the uh you know, the um uh I found that uh, south I think at that time it was southeast and maybe southwest was uh, predominantly black. And Northwest was black, and then others. So it was sort of the same kind of physical segregation uh, that occurred in uh, Birmingham in terms of where people live. Yes. So that wasn't different. So the main thing I, I, you know, I concluded at that time, and even today, was that the only the difference was that there were no signs. There was no for colored only signs or for white only signs, wow. which made it difficult to negotiate because. Growing up in, uh, in Alabama, if you, if you were going to a, a, a restaurant or, or some facility and they had a sign up colored only or, or white only, then you knew not to go in if you yes. said white only. Yes. Whereas in, uh, in, 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 uh, in the north, what we call the north, um, there were no signs. So you had to know or you had to take your chance. You know, and sometimes you walk in a place and you say, I shouldn't be here. You know, you yeah. kind of figure it out because everybody's looking at you funny and they're dressed in some weird looking white people, you know, and stuff like that. So that was that was the thing that I noticed uh, immediately and uh, as a 16 year old uh, arriving in uh, in D.C. And then uh, eventually going to uh, like two months later, I went to uh, New York. I took a bus to uh, to uh, uh, New York. And uh, and arrived at uh, uh, Penn Station, you know, and um, um, and my my brother, half brother, uh, you read about him in the in the in the book, uh, but uh, half brother who I just met, uh, and he was like thirty uh, something. I was sixteen. Yeah, and he lived in, but he wasn't at the station to meet me, so I got in a cab and I said. Uh, Gave him a 35 Hawkinson Avenue, Brooklyn. He drove a few feet and then said, I don't go to Brooklyn. Huh. So I got in the next cab. I said, 35 Hawkinson Street, Brooklyn. And make a long story short, that happened two or three times. And then a <laughs> brother on the side over here was looking at me laughing. And uh, and and he had a good smile. So I wasn't, you know, I, I felt okay going over to talk to him. He said, come on, man. He said, you got to take, nobody going to take you to Brooklyn. You know, you got to take a a, a, a a train. I said, "What? A train? A subway? A subway? You know, subway? What's what's a subway?" He said, "Follow me." So he takes me down, <laughs> and he shows me this big board. It looks like a a, a, a scrabble board, and he said, "You got to take the A train to B train to another train to another train to another train to another train." And the only thing I heard was take the you know take the train and buy a token. You know, 
I think a token was 10 cents or 15 cents at the time. I get a token and I, I get on this train. And uh, and I look, so I look at the sign, it says Brooklyn. So I'm thinking, I've, the population of Birmingham at that time uh, was 500,000. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I, so uh, Titusville was a small section of Birmingham that maybe had, you know, 20,000 or something. Uh, you know, anyway, it was a much. So I'm down. thinking Brooklyn is like a small section of Birmingham. <laughs> I didn't realize at the time Brooklyn had 3 million people. <laughs> and, you know, Birmingham, all of Birmingham was 500,000 500, people. Right. You know what I mean? So I'm Brooklyn, and I'm saying, I'm in Brooklyn. I just got off the train, right? I get off the train, and I'm trying to talk to somebody to ask how, what option. Nobody speaks English. You know, they're the, the white people, but everybody's speaking all these different languages. I mean, it was a whole different concept. And it was 2 o'clock in the morning, and people, it was like people everywhere on the street. Now, in Birmingham, <laughs> at 9 o'clock, downtown was empty. Yes. You know, things were closed up. This was a culture shock. Uh, and just to make a long story short, I, I ended up uh, going through a big adjustment uh, uh, to that, so so so, and and I didn't like Brooklyn. I didn't like New York because again, you had concrete. There was no grass. There was no lightning bugs. There was no, you know, uh, uh, fruit. There was no trees. What, what did kids play? What? Are, I mean, it was you know. I started missing Birmingham actually. Wow. In, in that sense. You know, because uh, wow. and they had their row houses again. You yeah. know, where my where my half brother lived was in a uh, connect a thing that connected to the places next to him and whatnot. Thirty five Hopkinson Avenue. I'll never forget that address. But um, uh, so that was my some of my my experiences. All right, you know, so so you you lived in New York. You were in D.C. So two of the biggest uh, cities in the North. Then you go to Chicago. And remember, as we heard earlier, uh, Reverend Rice helped you get a scholarship to get your tuition paid, but you still got to eat. You still got to live. So you need money. So you go to Chicago. Tell us about your time in Chicago and my understanding, actually being a Chicago bus driver to earn money to pay for school. I, uh, in my track to be, uh, to, to, you know, for jobs, I had a lot of different jobs. I, I, uh, and, um, Small jobs, you know, temporary summer jobs, j jobs during school. And uh, after my first year at uh, Meharry Medical College, uh, I went home with a, a student who was from Chicago. Hmm. And uh, and Chicago, uh, and, and he told me about the fact that the bus, the uh, Chicago Transit Authority were hiring, uh, hiring people to work for the summer. Uh, and they paid two dollars and thirty cents an hour, and the minimum wage at that time was a dollar and ten cents an hour. Oh wow! So it was a lot of money, and plus you got full time, uh, double time, uh, and uh, and so forth. Usually, almost every every day. So uh, I applied the first day I was there, and three days after being in Chicago, I got a job driving a bus. Now the problem was I had never been to Chicago, and I didn't know uh, anything about Chicago, so. <laughs> So uh, I would get lost, you know, and uh, uh, make the wrong turn. For example, uh, the first day after finishing training, uh, they gave they get thirty minutes after finishing training and getting my license. Uh, actually, an hour later, they give me my first route, 
And I'm going to drive the State Street bus, which is now called Martin Luther King Avenue, but at that time it was called State Street. The State Street bus from 119th and Morgan to downtown uh, Chicago, which was a loop. And that, that meant 119 blocks. Yeah. And they gave me a card, a little smaller than an index card, that had a line showing my route. And so... So I said to the the supervisor, I said, well, how, you know, uh, I'm looking at this map. How do I know where to stop? <laughs> he said, wherever you see a bus uh, bus stop sign. I said, okay, that, that makes sense. That makes it easy. <laughs> the problem was sometimes I get to, you know, bus stop area and I couldn't see the, the sign because either there was a, a car there or a tree or something. So I miss bus stops. And when you miss a bus stop and people... We're expecting to get off. They're yelling, hey, what the fuck? You know, they're cursing. What the hell's going on? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That kind of thing. So so I remember one incident in particular where um, uh, a gentleman asked me, he said, do you go to uh, Wrigley Field? Yeah. And I said, Wrigley So I looked at the card and I said, hey, this no help. Uh, Wrigley Field. I said, uh, I don't know where Wrigley Field is. And he said, aren't you the... Am I effing bus driver? <laughs> I, said, I said, yeah, but I just arrived here. I've only been here two weeks. Uh, I mean, two days, uh, two weeks because it was in the training. And, you know, I, if, if, if really feel, I go from State Street to, I mean, from the, the Loop to 119th and Morgan. If the Wrigley Field is in between there, then I go past it. And, uh, and, and they, you know, so people, do, they start cursing me out and this, that, and other. And as I said, they developed a mob mentality. So I just close the bus and take off. You know, <laughs> stuff like that. And, uh, and other things happened. I had a, one time this like really pretty lady gets on the bus. And, uh, and at the time, I just, the week before, a few days before, I had, uh, I had uh, not turned in enough money. I miscounted or something sort of way. So I was busy watching the money. I said, I got to focus on the money. Yeah. So I would use the hand and make sure I'm getting, a, you know, getting the right money from the hand and put it in the corn box and I listen to it. And I look at this hand and I see, you know, it's a very feminine hand. And it's got uh, a, a turquoise, a turquoise ring, my yeah. favorite. So I go up, she's got a turquoise bracelet. Then I go up. And she's got a dashiki on, and then she's got a hoop earring, and then I see a real short afro. Wow! And 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 then I look at her. She's got mirrored, uh, round, rimless sunglasses, and I look at her sunglasses, and I see my jaw dropping. My jaw is drooping because I'm, <laughs> you know, like, wow. Oh. And and yeah. then, uh, and then we start. So she goes and sit down, sort of behind me, and I adjust my rear view mirror so I can see her, and. Um, we started talking and kind of get interested. And I said, where do you live? And she tells me the street. And she says, a couple of blocks over from from, from uh, State Street. I said, oh, okay. So then I just make a turn and take and drive down to her street to take her home. Okay. <laughs> to her front door. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, uh, and I make an announcement to the uh, people on the bus. Uh, I had, we had to take a detour because of uh, traffic conditions ahead. And we'll be back on the route uh, in a couple of couple of blocks. <laughs> and uh, I take her home to front door, and and we make a date. And and I say, uh, you know, I'm coming back to pick you up at eight o'clock. Wow! She said, you crazy? She said, where are you from? I said, Alabama. She said, figures. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and that was that was that was a uh, that was a fun year. You know, also I won't go into that whole story, but also I had um, 
a white roommate who was a law, law student. He had two or three roommates who were traveling through Europe for the summer. And so uh, he had a room for rent for the summer. Yeah. And uh, and uh, and he and his friends, every night they would do LSD and play this rock music, you know. And I introduced him to my music. Yeah. Uh, black music. And he introduced me to all this rock stuff and psychedelic music. And, uh, and I just watched them uh, over a period of time, maybe about two weeks, taking LSD every night. When, and nobody jumped out of one of them. Nobody did anything. So I won't go into what happened uh, after that. But uh, I decided, me and uh, uh, the lady that I met on the bus decided to uh, experiment. And some funny things happened from that experience. And, uh, and then I uh, had some of my friends, uh, 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 there was a bus driver strike. So some of us were off work and whatnot. And so we did some more experience. Anyway, that, I had after effects of that for about two years, but nobody, nothing serious like jumping, jumping off of, out of a window or anything like that. But some weird experiences from that and uh, never did it again. But uh, that, so uh, and um, so that was uh, kind of uh, an interesting summer. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> in Chicago. Yeah. Coming coming from the deep uh, south and now, going to New York and, and D.C. and Chicago. I could imagine you had some interesting summers and some interesting times. Yes. And, um, you know, I had a lot of other jobs. I, I worked in the, in the Senate post office. Uh, the Congressional Post Office in D.C. I worked for United Postal Service. At that time, it was called United Postal Service. Now we know it as UPS. Yeah. I worked at United Postal Service loading and unloading trucks. And uh, I worked uh, painting steel beams. That's when I learned first learned about the uh, lot, the um, numbers, which is now called the lottery. Yeah. But in those days, you played the numbers. And, uh, you know, you could put a quarter down on a, a nickel down on numbers and get back fifty dollars if you if you hit the numbers, you know. So yes, I remember a lot of people playing still they still play the numbers. Yeah. And do they even with the lotto? Because the lotto is kind of legitimized numbers. Yeah, I think there's still, numbers. There's still some places where they still play the numbers. Um uh, they still there's oh, still wow. some. But yeah, you're you're right. Lotto has taken some of their taken some of the business from them for sure. Right. So I had a lot of interest in uh job. I had you know as a waiter uh, in Chicago, I worked for the New York Shipping and Packing Company, uh, where we packed and unpacked, uh, delivering clothes and whatnot. I had a lot of jobs. I had to have jobs, yeah, you know, yeah, uh, to supplement supplement the income. Well, you you, you but, obviously uh, you know stayed and, and and did a great job keeping yourself, um, you know, financially stable, um, avoiding more LSD, as you said, experiments, and you end up right, graduating right. medical school become uh, yeah. an anesthesiologist. Uh, hopefully we'll get you back another time to tell us more stories about uh, about that part. But there was an incident in the book where you talked about where you're the chief of anesthesiology in a hospital. And and just the idea there were only a few black doctors, but you, you had some pressure uh, or some, some difference of opinion on who you should hire and why. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, first of all, I, I was recruited I had worked at Cedars of Sinai, which had uh, like 60 anesthesiologists at the time. Now they have close, maybe close to 200. But um, I, and I found that uh, there was a lot of uh, conflict between groups and stuff. You know, you imagine 60 guys trying to get along. Yeah. So I had the opportunity to, to work at this hospital where it would be only two of us. 
So I was recruited by a lady who was a black woman, female anesthesiologist. She recruited me. And uh, then right after that, she uh, she left. So at age 29, I became chief of anesthesia at this hospital. And I recruited a, 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 a black anesthesiologist that worked with us. And we were working for about, you know, a couple of years. And then the uh, now the, the, the anesthesia service was a service of the uh, surgery department. So the chief of mm-hmm. surgery had uh, authority over over uh, the surgery committee had authority over anesthesia. So uh, one day, this uh, chief of ana- chief of surgery, who I had good rapport with, and he requested me for all of his surgeries. Uh, and we had good rapport and all that. Well, he called me in the hall one day and he said, you know, uh, Otto, he said, you know, I'm not racist or anything. He said, but I, I have, uh, and, and I won't say who, who it is, but I have some doctors coming to me saying, uh, we got two black anesthesiologists and uh, the hospital's predominantly white doctors. Uh, uh, and now we need a third anesthesiologist. He said, and I think that third anesthesiologist should be white. Mm. I said, uh, and um, so I listened to him, and and a little later after after that, I I, I took offense to it, and mm. I said, I'm just going to recruit the best person that comes up. You know, mm. uh, I, I can't. Uh, I'm not going to follow his direction about it. So, so I interviewed, and then I tried out a. Um, I had a, a, a black guy come in. First of all, you had to. There were many, in those days especially, there was a shortage of anesthesiologists, so there was plenty of opportunities to work wherever you wanted to. Yeah. And a lot of people, and, and CEDAS was recruiting like crazy, so you always had that option. So I had to present a case and, and, and sort of make this small hospital seem attractive in terms of this patient mix, mix and, and so forth and so on. So I had to sell sell the program. It wasn't, it wasn't like... People are knocking on the door to come in. Right, right. So, and and in that instance, you must take the best of the best, the best person, best qualified person you can find. So, what I would do is interview them, and then I'd have them come in and work for a while. And yeah. I had this gentleman who happened to be black. Right after the guy had talked to me, and they, and and uh, and uh, the chief of surgery guy panicked and brought in this um, uh, uh, white uh, female. Uh, Jewish anesthesiologist and uh put her in, in place and uh uh that sort of sort of happened but she turned out not to be very competent and had some issues and uh and uh as time went she was um she was uh, dismissed from the staff well uh after having some complications in fact including a unwarranted death and oh uh and he hasn't done and when I used to recruit I would um I would talk to the patient. I would get referrals. I mean, to the to the uh, anesthesiologist interview. Then I get referrals where he worked. And then something that most people don't realize: I would call hospitals where he worked. And if I happen to know some of the medical staff, I mean, because the best people to talk to about an anesthesiologist's confidence is the people he works with, like the nurses, yes. the techs, yes, and other surgeons that work with him. Yes. And so I would do that informally. You know, you couldn't officially do that and get that in writing, but I do that in front of him. But he did none of that. He didn't do any any of the normal kind of uh, of uh, venom that you do on, on the. Uh, so he brought in somebody that was that was incompetent. Uh, but that all reversed because he wasn't elected chief again, and I was elected chief, and I eventually brought in 
uh, that that black anesthesiologist left and moved back east that I had uh, wanted to recruit. And another one took a position at Cedars. And I ended up getting a, having a Sikh uh, and a, uh, I think, a, a white white one, and then a, a, a Indian guy who was religious. His religion was a Sikh, which means he had to turban yeah, yeah, in the yeah. long hair underneath. That's right. I, I just think that was a, a, a so, very important <laughs> story because it, it's part of ARC. We talk about um, that when we see injustice, when we see uh, racism happening, um, sometimes it's subtle, um, but it's 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 supporting institutions that hold other people out and protect others in and allow them to be in. And um, it's it's not always that that uh, that obvious. Sometimes it's again these ones that are, hey, you know, I, I'm not racist, I don't have a problem. But it might not be that's such a good idea out of the 60 or so surgeons that we have uh, two, and then there'll be a third one that's black. So let's make sure that one's white. Well, that's that takes courage for you as the chief anesthesiologist and having to challenge your boss to say, you know what, I'm going to hire the best person. I'm not going to designate that it has to be one or another. It needs to be the best person uh, and eventually standing up and doing the right thing and being proven right. So I'm sure there have been many other examples in your life where you've been the first or the only, and you've had to do things and represent in a way to help make the path for those following you a little easier. And that's something we tend to forget about when we talk about anti-racism and anti-hate. It's taking those stances when you are the one, when you are the first, and you've had to do that many, many times. So I want to thank you personally for the, the trail that you've blazed uh, for many in our society and helping start to break down some of these institutions, you've seen a lot of change, um, you know, since you grew up in, 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 in Alabama and in the deep South and Jim Crow to where we are today. And you mentioned earlier, there's still some things you see that are kind of the same. What, what do you see that's different or better? And what do you think needs to still change in terms of our society when it comes to trying to get rid of this, this terrible thing that's called racism? What I'm saying now is uh, is more of a political change. You know, the the people that have come into power through through uh, Trumpism uh, seem to be more like George Wallace uh, type people. Uh, um, uh, the things that they're doing to suppress voting, the things they're doing to to uh, suppress an election. They just passed today something, uh, I just read briefly, just before we began talking, where in Texas they'd given the governor authority to uh, to reverse an election in the largest county, which is, uh, I think it was Houston. Wow. Uh, where they have uh, a predominant, you know, the, they, voted, they voted, I think, 62% Democrat the last time. Mm-hmm. And he, they gave him some sort of power, and I don't have all the details because it was just kind of flashed, uh, flashed through my computer on the news, where he has the authority, to, uh, Greg Abbott has the authority to, uh, to, um, to uh, uh, dis- dismiss the election or change, not accept the results of the election. So it's sort of becoming, uh, it's reminding me of Alabama when George Wallace said segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, and that they are trying to reverse things back to those days. And 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 uh, thankfully, uh, our younger generation seems to be reacting to it 
and uh, and going and, and the last election kind of showed that they are going to the ballot. And that's the only choice we have. That's the only way we can change things is by putting the correct people in power. Now, the way the system, the, the United States system is set up with the with the with the uh, with the senate, two senators from each state is uh, was supposed to uh, originally it was made to and you have the representatives and all that. But but what's happening is these small states, which is where the Republican base is, get to have two senators, even the same as California, mm-hmm. who uh, who has a huge population, a very diverse population. Uh, that was more reflective of of of, uh, of our of our country, but these small states and the Republicans have taken over are kind of determining all this stuff in the past. I mean, this has happened with with uh, with abortion rights. This happened with voting rights. So um, I'm seeing um, kind of a regression, and and I think a lot of it has to do with the the fact that there are no signs that say colored only, white only. That is not recognized by our, our, our youth, and in addition to that, we used to have. Uh, when I was growing up, we had the news at uh, in the morning, nine o'clock news. And you had the news at night. And everybody watched mm-hmm. the same news. Now we have, uh, you know, the, uh, stations are broken up uh, culturally, language-wise. You know, you have some uh, Hispanic stations, some Iranian stations, some Asian stations. Some so we're not all getting the same news. And then you have stuff like Fox, where there's a lot of distortion of the news. And, and and Newsmax and so forth and 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 our younger generation uh, don't seem to be as in tune. I mean, you could go on and and not know anything about what's going on because they don't watch the news. Yeah, they they have so much so many other options to watch. When we had two channels or three channels, you know, we all kind of watch the same thing. But now they're watching other stuff and don't know what's going on. But but um, but it was kind of heartwarming. Last year, when the reaction to uh, over the last few years, the reaction to George Floyd, when the young people came out, black and white, yes, uh, all nationalities, and the people reacting to Roe versus Wade, yeah, Roe versus Wade's reversal, and uh, and uh, and so forth. So, I see a lot of um, you know, um, I thought we had progressed past that, and now I see a lot of attempts to reverse things back to where it was. And the only way to escape that is through voting. Through voting. You know, uh, voting these people out and, and getting people in. I mean, just this election deniers and this. I mean, it's just crazy right now in terms of uh, who's in power. And it shows you that who's in power counts. Yes. Because when you get a crazy person in power, they can, they can, they can uh, abuse that power. I mean, this thing that's happening in, uh, in Florida is kind of ridiculous with... Uh, with uh, the governor there attacking uh, Disney and and based solely on his personal because they he didn't like them personally or what they did so I think the suit of Disney suing the, the governor uh, suing the state will uh, will change things but that's going to take time because you know the slow the courts move very slowly I see uh, yeah. um, I I don't see I see the progress but the biggest thing that concerns me is our young people. Uh, particularly black people, awareness of how serious what's happening is. You yeah. know, are they aware that how serious this can be? Because yeah. they've, they've had a good 
you know, we've gone out under, I mean, it was a time when you didn't worry about uh, the Republican president, whether it was Republican or Democrat. You knew that you had a good person in charge and they were yeah. trying to do that. And that sometimes they are, and, and there's always issues and problems whether the Democrats are, are yes. Republican. But now it's become like, oh my God, I mean, it's like if Republicans get in power, it's, 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 uh, it's uh, you know, a total different ballgame. So it's sort of scary. That's the way I see it. Yep. And like you said, I mean, it, it's, it's great to, to see how all the young people came out, but having so much stratified news that's tailored to that specific person's belief, um, it does make it difficult for people to navigate the truth. And so sometimes younger people and others, not just young people, just tune out and they either just listen to their view or or don't listen to anything. Um, and, and you just wonder, does everybody recognize how serious the current attack on democracy is? Um, that's, I, I, I yeah, 100% exactly. agree to me, that's the biggest threat that we have against us right now. But switching the topic to, to something more light, um, in your past, you've actually done a lot of different things, started different businesses, but you also helped start the career of a future Grammy award-winning group. Tell us that story. Well, you know, I um, I I, uh, I started playing trumpet in the fourth grade, so I've always had an interest in music, uh, and I played trumpet all the way through from fourth grade through elementary school. I, I played a solo trumpet in my graduation from elementary school. I played trumpet all the way through high school, and I uh, haven't picked up. Well, I just recently picked up a trumpet, tried to play, but I hadn't played uh, in any time. But I did come with an appreciation of music. And uh, and I always gravitated, even in high school, toward musicians, especially talented musicians. And I did the same thing in in college. And uh, so when I came to L.A., I had two friends who uh, they were actually fraternity brothers, Capra brothers, who had um, uh, just done their first song uh, after leaving Howard. And the name of the song was "I Want You Back." By, by the Jackson Five, <laughs> and that was Freddie Perrin and uh, Franz Mazel, and they uh, Franz Mazel pledged capital with me. Freddie Perrin was my my big brother; he was a year ahead of me, and uh, and they ended up d- d- uh, making all of the Jackson Five songs for the next four years. Wow! So, and I spent a lot of time with them, uh, and they uh, uh, included me in a lot of activities. I ended up going to the Grammys in the in the early seventies. The Grammys only started maybe in the late, uh, well, somewhere like fifty nine or sixty or something. So, so, um, so then I, uh, so I, I had this music thing, and I hung out at their house. They had a house up in Hollywood Hills, and. And and I met a lot of musicians and and people in the industry and all this. Then I, I happened to go to a wedding, and the wedding was um, a friend of mine's sister was marrying uh, uh, Smokey Robinson's uh, guitar player, <laughs> uh, and uh, and the wedding was in Larchmont, Larchmont, I think that's called yeah, Larchmont Park. Okay, not Larchmont Park. Uh, yeah, you know, anyway, it was in this neighborhood, a semi-gated community. Of, of big houses, and uh, and I, I, and when I went, uh, I got to the wedding late, and I went through the line. You know, I shaking hands and this and that of the people. And I went to the backyard, and I heard this this music. And it, and it make a long story short, eventually I gravitated over to the because uh, the, the band was on the same level as the um, as everybody dancing. You know, it wasn't an elevated uh, floor or anything. And and I thought originally I thought it was a, a, a recorded music. 
But it turned out it was a group with two ladies, uh, one lady playing the bass guitar and the other one playing a guitar, and they were singing. And they were singing top 40 songs. And so every song was a song you heard. It was a hit, and, and we were dancing and going crazy. And um, and the leader of the group, it was two, two uh, uh, a keyboard player and a, and a drummer and the two guitar players. And I approached the group of Perry Kimball was the uh, was the uh, keyboard player and the uh, owner of the group or the manager of the group or the uh, originator of the group. And I spoke to him and he told me they were record they were recording at a nightclub in uh, in um, in uh, Hollywood, uh, right across the street from A&M Records, and just south of uh, of uh, Sunset Boulevard, a club called. Um, Called uh, et cetera, club et cetera, and they were playing there every every day, uh, every night. So I started going to see them, and they were really good. And they had a really good um, persona. And I had never seen two females uh, playing instruments other than piano, okay, and uh, especially guitar and 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 singing. And they were were pretty women, and they moved, and they danced well, and they sang well, had great voices. So I started taking friends of mine, the two gentlemen I mentioned who uh, did uh, uh, Jackson 5, I took them down to see them. I knew the Commodores from, from, from Alabama. I took one of the members of the Commodores down to see them. I wow. took the Commodores manager, Benny Hansburn, down to see them. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and then the group, I think, was in, were impressed by the people that I was bringing down to see them, and they asked me to be their manager. And so... Uh, uh, another friend of mine, uh, 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 he, was, he was a gynecologist, actually. He had a patient that he wanted me to see who sing, but after he saw Taste Honey, he forgot about his singer, and he joined me to, to promote this group. So make a long story short, we we shot the group. We went to, uh, oh, and the group, I listened to their music. I didn't like any of their original songs, or okay. the songs that they had written. Okay. So uh, I said, the thing that's, that's, that's hip about them is is their persona, their stage presence, and the fact that there's two females and the way they way they sing and the way they move and and all this kind of stuff. So um, my uh, friend, uh, the one of the uh, producers, he had a, a a video recorder. And at that day, the video recorders were huge. It was like three feet by two feet. <laughs> but we took that video recorder, we rented the camera, and we went down, we worked out with club, et cetera. They wouldn't let us record during a live performance, so we had to record on a Saturday during the daytime. And we recorded them performing. Then I took that tape and I edited it down to like twenty minutes. And I shopped that videotape instead of instead of a instead of a, uh, a what you call a demo tape of, of their music. I shopped a, a videotape. And uh, and I went to maybe I mean to every major record company. I went to all these different companies and 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 they didn't get it. They didn't see it. Okay. But then. Um, was at my friend's house, the producers, and Larkin Arnold, who uh, was uh, also from Howard, and uh, and and I knew him from Howard, was had moved to the position of head of A&R and Capitol Records, and he got it right away. He saw him. He said, if you can get Ponce and Larry to, uh, Mizell to produce him, I'll sign him. Wow. He signed him. Uh, 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 the first record that came out, uh, and it was Boogie Oogie Oogie. Boogie Oogie Oogie, Hit yeah. the charts. Was, was was number one for 13 weeks. We knocked Stevie Wonder out of first place. Wow. And, uh, and uh, 
And and it went platinum, the album and the uh, 45 went platinum. And it was like, and then uh, we won the, uh, that following year was 1979, February 1979, I think it was. I was at the Grammys and I could not believe we won. We were the first black group to win for Best New Artist. That's unreal. And, and the Grammys had been in existence about 22 years at that point. We were the first black group. Now it's pretty common, you know, for right. black groups to win everything. But we were the first first black group. And and uh, I had to stop. Uh, I had a family emergency kind of situation where my my um, ex-wife had an automobile accident and whatnot. And I had to stop, take care of my daughter. So I, I dropped out of the business at that point. But... Uh, I um, I really enjoyed that that doing that that process and that that experience and uh, and it was really gratifying that what I saw uh, actually happened. You know, I mean, yeah. what I what I envisioned about these uh, two ladies. Unfortunately, they you know ego different different things happen to different members of the group with drug use and 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 different things happen in terms of uh egos where they then realize that the reason that they were a hit and and, and I point this out in the, in that story is because of these producers yeah. you know Foss and Larry Martell they had they cuz they also had the number one they did the the thing called Blackbird uh, which won um which won for best album uh, a few years earlier, so they 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 were just they just had the hands, you know. They were just talented producers, because if you could get a top jazz album and then get a top R and B song, I mean that shows that you just have your fingers, you know, on the pulse of, of, of what people love. And uh, but they didn't realize that, and they switched to another producer, and uh, they never had another another hit. Um, they had a, 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 a banner hit called uh, Sukiyaki. But one of one of my um, the, the lead singer's voice was very similar to Smokey Robinson's. I thought, yeah. Uh, and uh, and she, they did a cover of a I forget the exact tune, but they, she did a cover on that album. She did a cover of uh, of one of Smokey Robinson's tunes, which to, to this day is still one of my. My favorite uh, songs from that album. Wow! If you get a chance to see the album, you can look for that song. I think it was "Tell Me Something Good," not "Tell Me." Uh, I can't remember the name, which one it was, but um, uh, yeah, that was a hell of an experience. <laughs> and uh, and I thought I could do it. You know, after I took that break and I had to spend time with my daughter, five or six years later, I tried to go back and do it again, and it didn't yeah. work. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a. It was a. It was just a time when all of the. It was like predestined. I felt yes. like it was predestined because I also just before that I met that group. I had taken a course at UCLA called How to Get a Record Deal, and make a demo, and I just took it on a whim. You know, just and I used that book to 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 figure out how I was going to market the group. Yes, but but I figured out I need to do a demo tape rather than I mean a, a, a demo videotape though the audio tape because they didn't have any hit records i don't like any of the, the original songs but they could sing top 40 songs really right, good right right know. so they had the talent you just had to get them the right material and the right production and you did that and, and, right, and right. that's that's incredible man what an incredible story you, you've done a lot of things man you've obviously been 
an entrepreneur, a trailblazer in, in medicine, as I mentioned, clearing the path for many. Um, a music manager we just talked about. You founded your own nonprofit. Um, you're giving scholarships. Um, now you're writing. You're doing. You just did your novel. You got screen or your your memoir. You're doing screenplays. So many things you're doing. To close out the uh, the interview, what's next for Doctor Stallworth? And and is there a message that you want to leave our audience with? Uh, what's next? Um, I don't know what's next. I'm. I'm, I'm uh, it's interesting you mentioned that. I, I was just approached yesterday by a producer who wants to take those stories and do them as a play. Wow. Uh, having people in the stories as a play. And uh, that sounded good to me. I mean, I don't know much about that angle of the business. Um, but yeah, he wanted to take it on the road as uh, doing a play where they would actually read uh, the different stories. Um, sounded good to me, but like I said, it's not my um, special specialized area. I'm not, I'm not familiar with how that works or what to do, but he is, he's a, a successful uh, producer and, uh, and casting director. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, in terms of what, I, what I'd like to do next, I'd like to write the screenplay that I wrote, which is called um, called uh, Murder at Beauty World. And Beauty World is a fictitious uh, surgery center, uh, uh, cosmetic surgery center. I want to convert that to a, uh, a book. And, uh, and, uh, but I just had a presentation to my writers group uh, this past Saturday, of the I wrote at like eighty pages and I presented twelve pages to the group. It didn't go well. I mean, they're very kind, and you know, that's an important thing about a, a, a in person meeting. You can kind of read the faces and and read the body language. So I could tell that what I had written, they, they criticized it, but not as harshly as as the look, as I could feel the energy. So I got to go back to the drawing board on 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 that in terms of uh, writing. What I did was use the uh, screenplay as a uh, kind of as a, a guide, and they said it sounded like a screenplay. So that's why I need to be right on that. But that's what I want to do next. I, I want to make that that happen. I'm going to follow through on promoting uh, promoting this book, and I want to uh, grow the foundation because I, the the Star Wars OES Foundation, which is to help. Um, Focus mainly on black male students who uh, who have the uh, ability, the desire, the drive to go to college but lack the money. Yes, and I want to focus on 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 on, on that and try to raise more money for the foundation to help. Right now, we I have two students, one at Howard, one at uh, Meharry, and that's all I can afford. But um, I'd like to help more students. So I'd like to see that grow. And so I'm going to, and, and it's gotten very little attention so far because I've been involved with so many other things regarding uh, the book and the promotion and whatnot. Uh, but I want to, that's that's what I next want to see happen. Great. I want to see that foundation grow and I want to help more and more students. And because uh, uh, I think it's important. Great. It's how can people donate? Help. Maybe provide the, tell the details one more time yeah, how to find, yeah. how to donate. Uh, you can go to starworthoes.foundation. Yeah, starworthoes.foundation. And uh, that'll take you to the website that, that talks about the, uh, the, uh, the foundation and how to donate and, 
and 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 how it came about. In fact, uh, on that on that website, there's a picture of Reverend Rice with Condoleezza when she was like six or seven years old, uh, which was when the last time I saw her before seeing her in uh, in uh, in uh, L.A. And that, and that was that was really uh, a heartwarming thing because at the time I I left her, she was in the second first or second grade. The next time I see her, she's provost at Stanford. Right. This was like 1995, <laughs> Yep. You know, and later she went on to do other things in the government and whatnot. But, uh, you know, we're kind of politically uh, on different spectrums in terms of Republican versus Democrat. Yep. But in terms of uh, a homegirl and seeing someone succeed and, and, and being smart, you know, she was a child prodigy. She was playing piano at age uh, four and five. And wow. she was an ice skater. Yeah, you know, in Birmingham, you yeah. know, of all places. So yeah. she's, she's quite a company. I'm very, very proud of her in that respect. And of course, and I see where she got her strength from her father, which provided me some of that, some of that strength peeled, you know, peeled off to me. From, That's right. From him. That's right. Dr. Stallworth, thank you for sharing your incredible and entertaining stories, as well as your perspective. And congratulations on the publishing of your first book, A Memoir. Are you an N-word or a doctor? Which I thoroughly enjoyed and personally can tell our listeners that there are so many more great stories and additional details in the book that Dr. Stallworth didn't get a chance to talk about on this episode. So please buy it and read it. You will be thoroughly entertained and uplifted. Dr. Stallworth, thank you again for blazing the trail for us all and reminding us once again of hope. H-O-P-E, How Optimistic People Endure. Dr. Stallworth, thanks again, and we can't wait to have you back on the Ark of Change. Please come back and join us again soon. I will do that, and thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Visit us at joinark.org to learn more about Ark. Donate to our cause and join the movement that will change the world. To find the Arc of Change podcast with Donzo Leggett and learn more about the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition or ARC, please visit us at joinarc.org. You can also subscribe to the Arc of Change with Donzo Leggett on your favorite podcast hosting sites. I greatly look forward to our next episode, an opportunity to inspire you to become part of the movement that will change the world by eradicating racism once and for all. Until next time, stay safe. And continue to ask yourself, am I doing enough? And remember that none of us are doing enough as long as racism and hate still exist. Thanks for listening and goodbye. The Arc of Change podcast with Donzel Leggett is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. To learn more about Arc, donate to our cause and join the coalition, visit joinarcc.org. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and share this podcast to help spread our mission to change the world by ending racism once and for all. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay safe and be inspired.